I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Hebrews chapters 1 through 6. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Now, it's very critical that we understand what the book of Hebrews is all about. So let's begin with an introduction. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Now, I'm relatively comfortable with the notion that Hebrews was written by Paul, not Luke, Apollos, or Barnabas. Paul was an expert on Jewish law, having been a Pharisee, and so was the author of this book. Paul was passionate about showing the Jews that keeping the law was an old covenant concept, but Christ fulfilled those requirements. And that, incidentally, is what the whole book of Hebrews is all about. Some have argued that the style of writing is not Paul's. Hebrews is more a formal writing style. However, the audience for the book of Hebrews calls for a more treaties-like document than a personal letter to churches, like Paul's other epistles. One's writing style often changes for the situation. If I were writing a technical formal paper, the writing style of that paper would look nothing like my informal notes found on Bible Track and my daily commentaries. Another indicator used to dispute Pauline authorship is the lack of a personal greeting found at the beginning of his other letters. My reply is the same. Hebrews is a different kind of a document than those letters. One more evidence commonly used by those who feel that Paul did not write the book of Hebrews is the wording of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. After reading the discussion on these verses below, it seems logical to conclude that they have no bearing whatsoever on Paul's authorship. While it is academically fashionable to question Paul's authorship of Hebrews, the evidence for doing so seems, well, weak at best. Oh, one more thing. At the end of his letter in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, the writer of Hebrews says, They of Italy salute you. Hmm. Who would have been writing a letter to Hebrew Christians while in the presence of Italians? Hey, Paul was in Italy. He was transported there after he was arrested, and he appealed to Caesar in Acts chapter 25. Therefore, I'm sticking with Paul on this one. I'm not adamant about it, but you'll see in my commentary notes here a frequent reference to Paul's authorship. Since the Jewish sacrificial system still seems to be intact at the time of the writing of Hebrews, it seems obvious that it was written prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The epistle was written to Jewish believers who were still struggling with keeping the law after receiving Christ as Savior. So here's a cute and very helpful quote that will help you remember the purpose of the book. And here it is. Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to tell the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews. Now, I picked that helpful explanatory phrase up from Dr. Gordon Carpenter back in 1970 when he was president of Florida Bible Institute in Mims, Florida. In other words, here's what he means by that. The book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrew Christians to tell these Hebrew Christians to stop acting like Jews, being Hebrews, and start acting like Christians. These Jewish Christians are being told here that they need to rest in the finished work of Christ and stop all of their Judaistic rituals which they are trusting for righteousness. And incidentally, that mission seems very Pauline to me. 
In Hebrews chapter 1, we see that Christ is not an angel. He was better than that. Verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain." And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So here we go, for... Those Jewish believers having difficulty characterizing Christ's position with regard to God, Paul clarifies it right here in the first three chapters. Chapter 1 is intended to dispel the impression that Christ was an angel. Jesus was not an angel. He was better than that. First of all, Paul frames the proposition in verses 1 through 3. Previously, God spoke to our Jewish fathers at various times and in various ways through the prophets. That's in verse 1. However, in these last days, he spoke to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, which is in verse 2. Notice the exactness with which Paul describes Jesus in verse 3 when he says, "...who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high." The Greek word for express image there is character. In other words, Jesus is the bodily form of God. As a matter of fact, I like to say it like this. Jesus is the only body that God ever had. I'm convinced that every incarnation of God in the Bible was Jesus himself. Incidentally, to the Orthodox Jew, this bodily incarnation of God in verse 3, that's a paradigm contrary to what they've been taught. For them, it's a deal-breaker. However, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 a highly regarded messianic prophecy to the Jews, and Jewish scholars accept it as such, by the way, that passage calls for a Messiah who is an incarnation of very God when it says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David, and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
There can simply be no other conclusion drawn but that verse 3 is intended to portray the unique incarnate deity of the Messiah per the specifications of Isaiah, and Isaiah's Messiah just happens to be Jesus Christ. In verse 4, the better-than-angels argument is introduced with regard to Jesus. The argument begins with the issue of inheritance when it says, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That's a rather simple statement based upon the messianic attributes of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Christ has a different purpose than angels, and that purpose is dictated by inheritance. Paul's refutation style here is an academic, logical approach to the supernatural identity of Jesus Christ. From verses 5 through 13, he quotes from several psalms that were regarded by the Jews to be messianic to demonstrate that the work of Jesus on the cross was a fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. Here are those verses that I just referenced. In verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2-7. Incidentally, Paul also quoted this exact psalm, chapter 2, verse 7, in his message found in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. Then in verse 5, it says, And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's a quote from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. That's the Davidic covenant passage of Scripture with special messianic significance to the Jews. And then in verse 6, it says, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. That's God speaking there, and it's a near quote of the Septuagint phrase found in Psalm 97.7. And then in verse 7, he says, And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. That's a quote from Psalm 104, verse 4. And then verses 8 and 9, it says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That is a quotation from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Then in verses 10 through 12, we read, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. That's a quotation from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And then in verse 13, we read, but to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? That's a quotation of Psalm 110.1. You'll notice from the notes on Psalm 110 that Paul makes extensive use of this messianic psalm in his epistles, another strong argument for Pauline authorship. As you can see from these quotations, Paul links Jesus to the Davidic covenant with all of these quotations. Now it's back to the comparison of Christ to angels the discussion that began in verse 4. These quotations serve to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Angels serve to testify to Christ, as he says in verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? In other words, angels are ministering spirits and not sacrificial lambs. Now, if you thought angels were reliable, well, just look at this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. 
For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Verse 1 here draws a conclusion based upon the proposition presented in chapter 1 when it says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Those things which we have heard undoubtedly refer to the doctrine of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. In the Jewish community, there would be a lot of pressure to abandon that notion. The angels were true witnesses. Even greater is the witness of Jesus Christ, who is validated by those indicators in verse 4, which followed his ministry. The evidence is undeniable. How can someone not be held accountable who rejects this presentation? In other words, as verse 3 expresses it, how shall we escape? Or, to put it bluntly, to ignore the gospel message is to neglect so great a salvation. Some have used the wording of verses 2 and 3 to support their contention that someone other than Paul wrote Hebrews. They reason that the writer states in verse 3, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. To them, that is in conflict with Paul's statements regarding the appearance of Jesus to him, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, where it says, Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, that seems like a very weak argument for determining that Hebrews could not have been written by Paul. He never claimed to have sat under the public ministry of Jesus. That's the context of verse 3. Paul's claim was that he received direct revelation from Jesus himself supernaturally. He goes on in verse 4 to validate the ministry of those early witnesses when he says, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. This is an obvious reference to the activities after the day of Pentecost of the apostles themselves. We see in verses 5 through 18 that Jesus Christ was no angel, verse 5, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone." For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again... Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, and that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham." 
Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The comparison to angels here in this passage goes on. Angels are messengers of God. Jesus Christ was no mere angel, but rather the Redeemer of mankind in verse 5. In verses 6 through 8, Paul quotes from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, to demonstrate that God had intended for man to have dominion over everything on earth, but he lost it. Then in verse 9, he makes the case that only because of Jesus taking human form, when it says made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, that only because of Jesus taking human form will the originally prescribed order of things be set right once after having tasted death. Death for every man. In further addressing the deity of Jesus, Paul emphasizes in verse 10 that it is Christ for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Now, after trusting Jesus as one Savior, we see in verse 11 that he who sanctifies, being Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, being believers, are all one. He clarifies the point of spiritual brotherhood with an appeal to Psalm 22, where he quotes Psalm 22, verse 22, in verse 12 here. As Jesus was on the cross, he quoted the opening words of that psalm when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul then uses excerpts from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, and verse 13. His point is this, Believers are united in Christ within the family of God as brethren. He continues in verse 14 by emphasizing that Jesus, by flesh and blood, might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He clarifies that he's speaking of the devil. Therefore, believers are delivered from this death, verse 15. It's simply not clear what's meant in verse 16. The New King James says, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, the Greek verb for give aid to here is epilobonomai. That's translated took on in the King James Version of this verse. As a matter of fact, of the 18 times this verb appears in the New King James Version, it's translated aid only in this verse. Otherwise, it's translated with the connotation of catching or taking hold or seizing in all other instances. For that reason, I'm more inclined to believe that Paul is really speaking of the fact that Jesus took on the nature of a human rather than of the angels. His office as high priest is emphasized here in verses 17 and 18. He took upon himself the form of a man to become our high priest, obviously better than angels. There's a promise in verse 18. Jesus overcame temptation and is, as such, able to give us victory over temptation as well. If you like Moses, you're really going to like Christ. That's the emphasis of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house." For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. 
Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Well, of course, Moses was a hero of Judaism. All Jews had the highest regard for Moses. This chapter compares Moses to Jesus Christ. Moses was faithful over that which was entrusted to him, we see in verse 2. Christ was faithful over that which was his as well. In verses 3 through 6, we see that. The analogy there is that Moses was part of the creation of Christ and God as we are part of that creation. That's in verse 6. Now, that's based upon the proposition seen in the latter part of verse 6 that those Hebrews adhere to the premise that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic promises. With that analogy introduced, beginning in verse 7, Paul brings up the rejection of God under the leadership of Moses and Aaron in the wilderness here that caused the Jews to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. When they left Egypt, the objective there was to reach Canaan, their own land. Upon the return of the spies in Numbers chapter 14, it was decision time for Israel, Here's the decision. Will you accept the promise of God or will you reject the promise of God? When Israel rejected the promise, that generation of adult men was decreed to die in the wilderness and never reach the objective, which was rest in the land. So here's the analogy Paul's making in verses 7 through 12. Just as all of the Hebrews who left Egypt did not exercise the faith to the fulfillment of rest in the promised land, so are there Jews in Paul's day looking for the Messiah who reject Jesus Christ as the same. There is no partial credit for tagging along for a portion of the trip. The destination, which here is faith in Christ, that's the objective, just like Canaan was the objective out of Egypt. In other words, good, observant Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah miss the reward just like those Hebrews that rejected moving into Canaan in Numbers chapter 14. We have a unique set of circumstances in the book of Hebrews with regard to terminology. When Paul uses the word brother or brethren, that's the Greek word adelphos, he may be referring to a blood relationship or perhaps a spiritual relationship. Since he himself was Jewish, he considered the Jewish people to be his brethren. However, when Paul uses the unique adjective holy, the Greek word hagios with brethren, In verse 1, it would seem that he's emphasizing a spiritual relationship in Christ there. However, in verse 12, it would appear that Paul is referring to his blood relationship where there is no adjective holy or Greek word hagios there. There is absolutely no question that verse 1 refers to believers. 
Paul's description is clear. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, accompanied with the other term, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. His reference to our confession obviously is meant to indicate their mutual faith in Christ with him. In verse 2, we see that Christ, as high priest, was faithful just as Moses was faithful. Jesus is deserving of more honor than Moses, we see in verse 3. Jesus, as the Creator, established in chapter 1, is greater than Moses as one who was part of that creation, we see in verses 4 and 5. Verse 6 needs some explanation. It says, But Christ has a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. It can't be understood properly without a clear view of the analogy that follows. Verses 7 through 11 are comprised of a quotation from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, regarding Israel's rebellion in Numbers chapter 14 following the return of the spies from Canaan. So here's the analogy. Just as many Hebrews started out on the journey to Canaan, chose not to actually enter, so many of the Jews in Paul's day who started out in the journey of Judaism looking for the Messiah, they'll stop short of accepting Jesus Christ as such. In other words, the end here is faith in Christ. The Jewish people of Paul's day must receive Jesus as their Messiah as the completion of their quest for God. Thus, the brethren of verse 12 are Jewish people who declined to receive Jesus as their Messiah, constituting their departing from the living God. Paul continues in verse 13 with a command that they should exhort one another to follow through with the natural end of Judaism, receiving Jesus as Messiah and not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin as were the Numbers 14 rebels. In verse 14, the tense of the Greek verb genomai translated in the King James Version, we are made, well, that tense is perfect active to indicate a completed rather than continuing relationship. In other words, we have become partakers, which is the way the New King James Version translates it. That captures the essence of what Paul is saying about those Jews who traveled the completed route from Judaism to receiving Jesus as the Messiah. In verse 15, he revisits the quote of verses 7 and 8 regarding those rebels in Numbers 14 who hardened their hearts. Paul uses the last four verses, verses 16 through 19, to drive the implications of that story home. Those rebels of Numbers 14 lived for as many as 40 more years without the hope of entering the Promised Land because of their rejection of God on that fateful day when the spies gave their report. He concludes his remarks in verse 19 with the following phrase, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. In essence, Paul is saying, Don't let this happen to you. The message of this chapter is, Do not let your sin keep you from obeying the truth like your forefathers did in the wilderness. In other words, don't reject Christ like your forefathers rejected Moses. In Hebrews chapter 4, we find the penalty of rejection, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested 
on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter in, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest any one fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight." but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need." Now, if it seemed to you that Paul explained that rebellion of Numbers 14 using Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11 sufficiently, well, then hang on, because he's still not finished. He devotes 11 more verses in chapter 4 to make certain these Jews understand the point. Just being Jewish isn't enough. That's the point. He actually emphasizes all the points of chapter 3 all over again. In verse 1, don't fall short of the messianic promise by declining Jesus as the Messiah. In verse 2, the mere hearing of the gospel message is not effective for salvation and, as Paul says, did not profit them not being mixed with faith. In verse 3, we read, for we who have believed do enter that rest. The Greek word believed there is in the aorist tense, which indicates a point in time as opposed to continual action. In other words, having once believed secures one's rest. In this verse 3, Psalm 95, 11 is once again quoted as it was in chapter 3, verse 11. The rest from the foundation of the world is meant to accentuate the role of faith as opposed to the works. Verse 4, we see a reinforcement of the concept of rest as opposed to works. It's seen by the usage of Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, which says, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then in verse 5, it's back to Psalm 95, 11. Verse 6, we see that some entered into the rest and some did not. That's a reference to those who accepted the evil report from the spies in Numbers chapter 14. Then in verses 7 through 9, Paul again quotes from Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8, as he did in Hebrews 3, 8 and verse 15 of that chapter. But here to make a different point this time, Psalm 95 is intended to refer to spiritual rebellion and spiritual rest. The point is made that if Joshua, the King James Version renders it Jesus, but Jesus and Joshua are just alike in Hebrew, and they are indiscernible in uh, English as well, unless you read them in context. So if Joshua had provided the final rest, then there would have been no need for David to reference the passage 
as he did in Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. Therefore, the people of God have rest from their works, but only through faith in Christ. And then finally, here, verses 10 and 11. Cease works. Those are the works of Judaism. Exercise faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah, and don't follow the example of the rebels in unbelief. Rest, just as God rested on the seventh day, which is the emphasis of verse 4. We find in verse 12 my favorite scripture on the power of God's word. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, how do you get the rest and the belief of verses 1 through 11? Well, it's by the exposure to God's Word. This Word of God is an offensive weapon in and of itself. Being a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, verse 13 tells us that no one escapes being revealed by it. And finally, verses 14 through 16 present Jesus as our great high priest. He's heavenly as opposed to the earthly Aaronic priesthood in verse 14. Though he was tempted to sin, he did not do so. Verse 15, therefore, Jesus is the high priest to whom all should go. And that's in verse 16. These verses regarding the high priesthood of Jesus lead right on into chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, so how did Christ become a high priest? Verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was." So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear." Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. We begin this chapter with four verses that lay a foundation for the Aaronic priesthood. Verse 1, the high priest was taken from among men to offer sacrifices for sins. As a sinful man himself, he, meaning the earthly priest, could identify with sinners. Verse 3, as a sinful man, he offered sacrifices for himself as well as the people. And in verse 4, like Aaron, a high priest was called by God. That brings us to verses 5 and 6. Melchizedek is the name to remember here. We first see reference to him in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20 with Abraham. Paul quotes Psalm 2, 7 and Psalm 110, verse 4, concerning Melchizedek in relation to the Messiah. He's introduced here, but the priesthood of Melchizedek is not thoroughly dealt with in Hebrews until we get to chapter 7. Let it suffice for me to say here that Jesus was priest after the order of Melchizedek, who preceded the order of Aaron's priesthood. If you want to know more about the priesthood of Melchizedek, then look at my notes on Hebrews chapter 7. Now, here are the points made regarding Jesus being our high priest. Verse 5, 
It was God who made Jesus our high priest. Paul quotes Psalm 2-7 to make this point when he says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then in verse 6, Christ's priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek. Of course, not Aaron. And here he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, to validate this premise. And in verse 7, we see that Christ interceded for us in the garden prior to his crucifixion. That intercession is recorded in Matthew 26 and Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22, and John chapter 18. And then we see in verse 8, he obeyed his calling, Jesus did, by proceeding to the crucifixion to pay for the sins of mankind. Now, the two key verses here are verses 9 and 10 when it says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was perfect, the only provider of eternal salvation and our high priest. No lesser specifications of Jesus are acceptable. These first ten verses establish that Jesus is our high priest after an eternal priesthood established by God as opposed to the temporary priesthood of Aaron. At this point in the discussion, Paul takes a detour from the topic to discuss the spiritual state of the recipients of this letter. He talks about the immaturity of the recipients of this letter in verses 11 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. As Paul begins to explain to these Hebrew Christians the concept of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which he introduced in verses 1 through 10, he pauses here to comment on how this doctrine is a little deep for his readers. It's because they're dull of hearing, he says in verse 11. While they ought to be capable teachers by now, instead they're in need of being taught again the very basics, as he calls them the first principles of the oracles of God. That's too bad, too. They ought to be mature in the Lord by now, but they're like babies when it comes to doctrinal issues. They're in need of milk, in other words, elementary doctrine, before they can understand the meat doctrine, such as the priesthood of Melchizedek. Paul then interrupts his discourse on the priesthood of Melchizedek to deal with the issue of immature believers. He'll pick Melchizedek back up in chapter 6, verse 19. And that brings us to chapter 6, where Paul deals with a major lack of understanding among the Hebrew Christians. Verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near 
to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In the first three verses here, Paul expresses concern that these immature Jewish believers still had not mastered the elementary principles of the faith. He began this discussion in chapter 5 when, in verse 13, he refers to them as babes in the faith. So, what are these principles of the doctrine of Christ on which these Hebrew Christians seem to need a refresher? Well, those are in verses 1 through 3. First of all, repentance from dead works. They needed to turn from the works of Judaism. And then we find faith toward God was another one. They needed to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Then we see the doctrine of baptisms in that list. They needed to understand the differences between the baptism of Jewish proselytes, baptism by John the Baptist, and Christian baptism, and throw into that the Holy Spirit baptism. And then he references the laying on of hands, probably there referring to laying on of hands for commissioning and ordination and so forth, for resurrection of the dead, and for eternal judgment. Six elementary doctrines that they should have mastered, but they still had not. You can see that these were some pretty basic issues of their Christian faith. The lack of understanding on these issues would open them up to false teachers. Then Paul expresses a major concern he has for these Jewish Christians, and that's their impression that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross can somehow be treated like the temporal sacrifices they were accustomed to making when they sinned. Many have sought to deny that these people referenced here are actually saved, but I'm convinced that the five qualifications described in verses 4 and 5 are intended by Paul to absolutely confirm that he is talking about washed-in-the-blood believers. Now, let's look at these five qualifications that constitute a believer as seen in here in verses 4 and 5. First, these people to whom he's referring were once enlightened. Then it says, "...have tasted of the heavenly gift, then have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, and have tasted the powers of the age to come." Well, it appears that Paul's going the extra mile to make certain that his readers understand that he's talking about saved people here in verses 4 and 5. So what's the falling away reference in verse 6? Well, here it is. These Jewish Christians were accustomed to offering another sacrifice every time they sinned. The Christian life doesn't actually work like that. Christ was just sacrificed one time, and it can't happen again. Paul is explaining this. That's it. There is no more sacrifice. So for these Jews who wanted to continue with their Old Testament pattern of sinning, sacrificing, sinning, sacrificing, sinning, and sacrificing, well, you get the picture. There's only one sacrifice now that they're saved, and that's Jesus Christ. Therefore, they needed to understand this, that if you say that the sacrifice of Christ was only good until your next shortcoming, your next sin, then you have a big problem. And the problem is you're all out of sacrifices because Christ was only sacrificed one time. If you take the sacrifice of Christ and apply it to the old pattern of repeated sacrifices rather than accepting the new pattern of once and for all sacrifice, then you have no more sacrifice to offer and thus no way back to salvation. 
Now, this hypothetical scenario was intended to show the Jewish Christians there that it was impossible to have a second salvation experience. It would require that they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. That, of course, is impossible. To sum it up, Paul is saying this, If you could lose your salvation, and you can't, but if you could, you could not be saved again because you have used up the only sacrifice Christ made for salvation. They must abandon their old mindset of sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, and sin, sacrifice again. They had to abandon that in lieu of the finished work of Christ once and for all, for all their sin. Paul's comments in verses 7 through 9 reinforces the role of good works in the believer's life. He's blessed from God as he serves. Verse 8 probably paints a scenario of the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3:11-15 where believers' works are tried by fire. Verse 15 of that passage says, "If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." This second fire analogy adds additional evidence to my arsenal that Paul wrote Hebrews. In verse 9 Paul expresses that he expects godliness in lifestyle from these Hebrew Christians. Verses 10 through 12 sum up Paul's exhortation here. You Jews who are making this transition from the law of Moses to faith in Christ need to follow this path to its logical and scriptural conclusion. Don't get sidetracked by attempting to create a hybrid doctrine of a little law and a little bit of faith. Then we see in verses 13 through 20 of Hebrews chapter 6, a different priesthood with a different standard. Verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil." where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Paul cites the Abrahamic promise of Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17 here in these two verses, verses 13 and 14. After God tests Abraham regarding the sacrifice of Isaac upon the altar, he renews his covenant with Abraham. Look at my notes on the Abrahamic Covenant. It's a topic, an article in the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Genesis 22.16 quotes God as saying on this very occasion, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. That explains Paul's reference to his point that he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself. The promises by God to Abraham were fulfilled, we see in verse 15. Now, how does that relate to this discussion? Well, here it is. Aaron's priesthood was temporary and earthly. Melchizedek's priesthood is permanent and heavenly. That's why under the Aaronic priesthood, repeated sacrifices were necessary. But only one permanent sacrifice after Christ, the high priest of the Melchizedek order of priest. The immutability of God's oath makes salvation permanent in the believer. 
These verses confirm our understanding of verses 4 through 6 that salvation in Christ is presented here as permanent and not temporal. Now hold on, here's the tie-in. In verse 18, he refers to two immutable things. What are these two things? Well, the first is the promise God made to Abraham in verses 13 through 17. The other immutable thing is the fulfillment of God's promise through Jesus Christ, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's in verses 19 and 20. Both immutable things are fulfilled in Jesus himself. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.